in Plymouth, England, and heading across to the New World. It was filled with 102 passengers, most of which were uh, religious separatists that wanted to go and practice their faith uh, in, in freedom in a, in a new land. There were uh, some others that were wanting to try and to, and to find prosperity, to own land in this new world. And so they set sail across the Atlantic Ocean and, and had a treacherous trip as they were navigating the waters. And after 66 days, they dropped anchor out on Cape Cod in what is now Massachusetts. They stayed there uh, on the shores for uh, about a month until they crossed Massachusetts Bay into uh, an area that they settled as the village of Plymouth at Plymouth Rock. Throughout that first winter, most of the people stayed on the boat. Uh, They didn't venture out into this new land. And they were suffering from exposure, from scurvy, from different contagious diseases. And when the springtime came, only half of the original passengers and crew lived to see their first spring in New England. In March, they went ashore and they had an unexpected visit. There was uh, a Native American man uh, who came and met them who spoke English. And he was talking with this, these, new, these new pilgrims. He left. He came back a couple days later with another Native American by the name of Squanto who was a member of the Pawtuxet tribe. This man uh, had been kidnapped by an English sailor at one point. Uh, He had escaped. He had spent time in London, uh, had come back to the New World, and spoke very good English. And he was a friend to these pilgrims. He taught them uh, how uh, how to grow corn. He taught them how to get sap out of maple trees. He taught them how to catch fish, how to avoid the plants that were poisonous. And he helped them to forge an alliance with a local Native American tribe called the Wampanoag. And that was vital and crucial to their survival here in this new world. They planted crops, and in November of the following year, 1621, their first corn harvest came in. And the governor, William Bradford, organized a feast. He invited a group, including the Wampanoag chief Massasoit, to come and to celebrate what we now call Thanksgiving. And this festival lasted for three days. Edward Winslow, who was a historian of the pilgrims, wrote, Although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. That was how they remembered that first celebration of how God had provided for them, protected them, watched over them through this first year in the new world. And so here in America, we, our history reminds us of how God provided for us in a hopeless situation. Every year we remember and celebrate his goodness with thanksgiving. In our passage today, God is also helping in a hopeless situation. But it's about much more than just a meal in this passage of Scripture. It's about a message because people in our land today are, are just as hopeless as these sick and starving pilgrims were a few hundred years ago. They just don't realize it. They just don't know 
the need that they have inside of their hearts at all times. And so just like these Wampanoag tribe came to offer hope to the pilgrims, we are called to share a message of hope to a people who are lost in their sin. As we continue this series through the first part of the book of Daniel that we're calling Exiles, the question that we're asking as we're looking at these, these, these leaders, Daniel and his friends, that were brought out of Judah, brought into Babylon in exile, the question that we keep asking for us is, how do you live out your faith in a world that's not your home? That's what they were trying to, to do as they were off in Babylon and they were in exile and they were far away from their homeland. And you and I are not at our home. This isn't our eternal home. We know that one day as followers of Jesus, we'll spend eternity with him. And so this is just a passing place for us. We are just sojourners here. And so how do we live out our faith in this place? What we see in this passage today is that we do it by pointing people to the gospel. By pointing people to the gospel. So if you have your Bibles this morning, stand in honor of God's word if you're able. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, today we're going to be looking at verses 36 through 45 together. Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. The word of God says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he's handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, smashes it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look at this passage of Scripture today, here's the action step that I want you to think about as you're thinking and considering how am I supposed to take this word that was written thousands of years ago and, and apply it into my heart today. The action step for us today is to boldly proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. To boldly proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to see the hopelessness that's found in this passage and then the hope that's found in this passage. So we begin with this picture of hopelessness. And if you flip back to the first verses of chapter 2, we find the setting. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him. 
and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, the mediums, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. So here it is, Nebuchadnezzar is at the, the, the pinnacle of his, of his power. This is a, a man who is one of the most powerful men in the world. He has a kingdom that has stretched across the Middle East, that stretched across Central Asia. It's believed that at this time he built one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and, and gave it to his wife as a gift. I mean, he has everything that this world has to offer at his fingertips. But he wasn't satisfied. It wasn't filling the the void or the hole that was there within his heart. And he has this dream that's troubling him. He's anxious, he says, to understand it, to know what this means. And he knew something is missing. And so he calls all of the wise men to come and to help him in his trouble. And he asked them to tell him his dream and to tell him the meaning of his dream. Now, this is pretty much impossible, right? I mean, he must have figured out that these guys were a bunch of charlatans because, you know, he could tell them the dream and they'd make up an answer for what it could mean. But if he doesn't tell them what the dream is, then they have no luck, right? He says, I'm not going to tell you what my dream is. You tell me the dream. You tell me what it means, In verses 5 and 6, he says, The king replies to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, then you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar learned very quickly is that his wise men weren't all that wise, and they were of no help to him in this matter. They couldn't give him the meaning of his dream because they couldn't tell him what his dream was. And so they know that everything here is hopeless. What he's asking is impossible. In fact, if you look in verse 11, it says, What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Even these wise men knew that what he was asking, only God could do. Only God could do this. In fact, that's the prayer that Daniel offers up to God in verse 20 through 23. He says, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power and now you have let me know what we asked of you for you have let us know the king's mystery he was asking all these wise men of course they can't do it and so he's about to to be ready to to kill all the wise men and daniel says hold on let me ask god and god gives him the interpretation of the dream now the world today is also searching for answers, just like Nebuchadnezzar was. 
The world today is also searching for meaning. And the world today needs hope just like he does in this passage of Scripture. But all of the places where they're looking and all the places that they're searching, they don't have the answer. They're trying to find world religions. And they find that that they don't have the truth in them. They're searching in... uh, coping mechanisms, whether it's uh, drugs or alcohol or chemical dependencies or, or any other sorts of things that they're trying to find to cope with this, the hurt or the pain that they're feeling. And they find that it's only temporary. They're looking in, in relationships and finding that they're not satisfying that need that they have inside their heart. And what they're looking for, only God can help them with. Just like they told Nebuchadnezzar, only God can answer this question. And that's because too often we're asking the wrong wrong question. We're saying, "What, what can I do here? What do I need to do to solve this problem? What do I need to do to cure this hurt? What do I need to do to to eradicate this pain, this, this hopelessness that I'm feeling? What do I need to do to save myself? And the mystery is this, what has been done? Not what do I need to do, the mystery is what has been done. Because there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, it's only what God has already done that can save us. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, it talks about this mystery. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27 Paul says, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations but now is revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's the mystery It's not, what do I need to do? What do I need to not do? What can I fix? What can I solve? The mystery is Christ in you. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory, the mystery is what God has done for us. In his wisdom, he's made the way of salvation through Jesus. The king paid the debt of his rebellious servants because of his gracious love for us. And so we can be set free from the power of sin and the power of death through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you're saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. So this is the mystery that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. What has God done for us? But as we look around in this world, there's hopelessness. It might be someone that lives at your house that feels this hopelessness. It might be someone that lives down the street from you that feels this hopelessness. It might be someone that you go to school with that feels this hopelessness. It might be someone that works in the cubicle across the office from you who feels this hopelessness. And as as Christians, are we going to get bogged down in the hopelessness of society. Because in this this land that's not our own, 
We're not called to fit in. We're called to stand out for Christ. And so we, as followers of Jesus, should never be hopeless. We shouldn't allow uh, the, the, the world news to inform our perspective and our worldview. Instead, we should allow the Bible to inform our perspective and our worldview. And the Bible tells us that we have hope. Are we going to get caught in the negativity around us? Or are we going to live in the joy and the freedom of Christ? Are we going to let our circumstances affect our attitude? Or are we going to walk in the hope of Christ? Because although the world is hopeless, we're supposed to be a ray of hope in the darkness. We're supposed to be a light that sits on the lampstand. We're supposed to be a city that sits upon a hill. We're supposed to be ambassadors for the king. So that although the world is hopeless, we tell a different story. Although we live as exiles in a land that's not our home, we have hope. And so we see in this passage of Scripture the hopelessness of this situation. But I want you to see how Daniel brings hope into the middle of hopelessness. Down in verse 26, the king says in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream that I had and its interpretation? So Daniel answers the king, No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery that he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. (laughs) Daniel reiterates to the king that what you're asking for is impossible. It's hopeless, but there's a God in heaven who has the answer that you need. That's what he says to him. He says, let me tell you about this God in heaven. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so then Daniel proceeds to give the king his dream and its interpretation. We read it earlier in verses 31 through 35. He says to him uh, that... This is an interesting dream. You're you're watching a colossal statue appear, a statue that's tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you. Its appearance is terrifying. The head is pure gold. Its chest and arms are silver. Its stomach and thighs are bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you're watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. And the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. He says, this is what your dream was. I'm sure at that point Nebuchadnezzar's mouth was like on the floor. How does he know my dream? How could he possibly know this? But not only does he know this dream that would have certainly been confusing to the king, he then gives him the meaning of it, the interpretation of it in the following verses. If you look up on the screen, you see a picture of what this might have looked like. In verses 37 and 38, he says to him, You, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon are the head of gold. You're the the kingdom that we begin with. He moves down into verse 39. He says there's a a second kingdom 
that will arise that's inferior to yours. This second kingdom was the Persian Empire that, that ruled following the Babylonians and had kings Darius and Cyrus that we'll learn about later in the book of Daniel. Then there's a, a third kingdom that comes in verse 39 that's going to rule the whole earth. This kingdom was the Greek empire that comes under Alexander the Great and spreads all across Asia. Verse 40, he says there's a fourth kingdom that is of iron that smashes all the others, and this is the Roman Empire that comes and conquers all these other empires. And then you get to verses 41 down through 43, where he describes uh, iron, that iron beginning to mix with clay, showing how this Roman Empire is going to be replaced with other kings and other kingdoms that are sometimes strong, sometimes weak, sometimes brittle. And then you get to the important part of this dream, verses 44 through 45, where he says there's this stone that breaks off and it smashes the whole statue to pieces. And then itself grows into a great mountain that covers the whole earth. This stone that crushes all the other kingdoms is the kingdom of God. This stone is the stone that the builders rejected. It's the chief cornerstone. It's the rock of our salvation. It is Jesus. And his kingdom will never be destroyed. All the other kingdoms will be brought to an end, but his kingdom is forever. And so in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's hopelessness, Daniel points him to the truth. He points him to the gospel. Because God's people have the answer. We have the hope. All around us, there are people just like Nebuchadnezzar who are searching for hope, who are looking for truth, and we have the hope of the world, Jesus. As exiles who are living out our faith in a world that isn't our home, our task is to point people to this gospel, to this good news. And yet, many Christians are just trying to merely survive in this exile and not to thrive in this exile. We're just sort of biding our time until Jesus comes instead of spreading his good news until Jesus comes. We're sort of hunkering down instead of storming the gates of hell. And why would we remain silent? Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What's interesting is you have the most powerful man in the world here who's going to a man who was brought here in chains looking for answers. And he gives him the hope of Christ. So are we going to boldly proclaim the hope that we have? So many Christians think, well, I'm just going to I'm just going to live a, a good life. And people will see that, and they'll just sort of connect the dots maybe, right? But I'm telling you, you're giving humans a lot more credit than we deserve. Because man just isn't that smart. And frankly, you and I just aren't that good, okay? Tell them about Jesus. That's what we've been told to do. That's what the Great Commission tells us to do. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, that's what Paul asked them to pray for him about. He says, pray for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of this gospel. 
I make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Billy Graham said that our world today so desperately hungers for hope and uncounted people have almost given up. There's despair and hopelessness on every hand. Let us be faithful in proclaiming the hope that is in Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. So often we, we shy away from having an awkward conversation with a lost person, right? If I, say, if I talk to them about Jesus, then it's going to make Christmas dinner weird at the family table, right? Or if I, if I talk to my coworker about Jesus, they're going to they're gonna avoid me in the office, or if I, if I say something to my neighbor, it's going to make things weird on the street and stuff like that, right? We, we shy away from having an awkward conversation with a lost person. We don't want to tell them that they have sin in their life, that their sin condemns us to hell. But here's Daniel having a very awkward conversation with a powerful king. In verse 45, he says, You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron and bronze and fired clay and silver and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. This dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. He stands up in front of the king face to face and says to him that his kingdom is going to be overthrown. And not only that, that there's a king that's coming whose kingdom will be established and will never end. I mean, that's sort of awkward, right? But if the king's going to have any hope, he has to bow before King Jesus. And in the same way, in the same way, men and women today need to be told that their kingdoms are going to be overthrown. That all the things that they're placing their confidence in are going to be shattered by the rock that Jesus is the true king of their lives, and if they're to have any hope, they must bow before King Jesus. It might be awkward, but putting their faith in Jesus is their only way of salvation. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, how did you come to believe in Jesus? Somebody had an awkward conversation with you at one point, right? They told you something that you didn't want to hear that you were lost, that you were dead in your sins, that you needed to be forgiven. Aren't you thankful that someone had that awkward conversation with you? Offer that hope to someone in need today. So what do you think is going to happen? Daniel tells this king that his kingdom is going to be overthrown. It's going to be replaced with another king whose kingdom will never end. He's going to kill him, right? (laughs) No, that's not what happens at all. Worship and thanksgiving is the king's response to hope. Verses 47 and 48. The king says to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. And the king promoted Daniel, gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. (laughs) Before, Nebuchadnezzar is ready to kill Daniel and all the other wise men. But now he's recognizing Daniel's God as the true God. And that's because this gospel is like medicine. 
It might be unpleasant at first, but it's healing for your weary soul. You might not like hearing that you are guilty in your sin, but you'll certainly like hearing that you can be pardoned through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's our only hope for forgiveness. It's our only hope for salvation. I think about a young Muslim man from a Central Asian country who is a refugee in Western Europe. He's left behind and lost his job, his family, his friends, his life, his everything. He's hopeless. Then he meets some of our IMB missionaries who tell him how he can have real hope, who tell him how he can have real meaning in his life through a relationship with Jesus. He gives his life to Christ, and he's saved, and now this missionary family is discipling him in his new faith. And that's because our job, Living as exiles in a land that's not our home is to point people to the gospel. So this morning, how are you going to respond to the hope of Christ today? There are some who are just like Nebuchadnezzar who need to respond to this hope by placing your faith in Jesus as your Savior, who who look around and you feel hopeless, and Daniel says to him, there's one coming who's going to set up a kingdom, and he's the real king that you follow after. And this morning, you may need to bow down and fall before this king in your life. You've looked for answers here, and you've looked for answers there, and you've tried this thing, and you've tried that thing, and they all come up empty because you were made to have a relationship with God, and he's the only one that's going to satisfy that need and that void in your heart. And although we are all sinners and all of us have sinned against God and all of us deserve punishment for our sin and the punishment for that sin is death, God in his goodness sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin by dying on the cross in our place. But on that third day when he rose out of the grave alive, he proved that he is this king whose kingdom will never end. And that you can be forgiven, that you can be saved, that you can have hope, that you can have a relationship with God. If you'll turn or repent from your sin and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. That might be the decision that some of you in this room need to make this morning. Some of you that are watching online need to make this morning. In a minute, we're going to have a time of response. There's going to be leaders here across the front. And if this is a decision you need to make, then come and give your heart to follow after Jesus today. Christians, today we've been reminded of how we're supposed to live out our faith in a world that's not our home. And the action step was for us to boldly proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. And so I hope that this morning as you see the faith and the the boldness of Daniel, that it would inspire you to live out your faith boldly and proclaim the hope that you have in Christ. By now, every one of us ought to have our one that we're praying for. We've been talking about this for two or three years now. Who is your one? The one person that doesn't know Jesus as as their Lord and Savior. It's a person that you might work with or, or might be in your family or might go to your school that you're praying for that God would save them. Would you boldly give them this hope this week? We've been encouraging everybody to to join an E team or to start an E team, an evangelism team that's reaching people groups and places in our city. Give them this hope this week. 
Tell them about the hope that they can have in Jesus this week. Out in the atrium, you see a big banner, 25 Days of Knox Noel. On it, you'll see 25 different ways that you can point people to the gospel over the next couple of weeks. Do it. It's not just a banner I'm hanging it up in the atrium. It's 25 ways that we can be engaging our city with the hope of Jesus during this season. So now it's time for us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we give you thanks today for your word, Lord, for the boldness that we see in Daniel to stand before a great and powerful king and tell him that he's not the answer, to tell him that he's missing and pointing him to Jesus. God, I pray that as we consider that action step in our lives today, that we would boldly proclaim the hope that we have in Christ because there are people all around us who are just as hopeless as Nebuchadnezzar was in this passage of Scripture. And, Lord, we have the hope. We have Christ. And so, Lord, may we boldly proclaim the hope that we have to our one, to our people group or place with an evangelism team. Lord, as we go out every day for 25 days in December, pointing people to Jesus. God, we're exiles in this land. But, Lord, how are we going to live it out? By pointing people to the gospel. So, God, I pray that you'd give us boldness, give us faithfulness, give us courage as we try to live out our faith each day. And, God, I pray for those who are here in this room who have never trusted in Christ as their Savior, or that today they would see the hope, the forgiveness, the love that they have in Christ, that they'd give their heart to him this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.